0: Again, Good morning to each of you. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see you folks here with us today. We see some visitors here even, and some folks who uh, aren't visitors but we don't see very often. (coughs) I am suffering uh, this week again from a little bit of a sinus congestion and so forth, so you'll have to bear with me a bit, and maybe... um, the ushers would kind of keep an eye on the water glass up here. I might need more than usual. Turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We are nearing the end of our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. As we come to the end of this book, we, we find that things get more clear. And the focus is better in terms of where the author, where the preacher in the the book of Ecclesiastes is going with all of this. We've noted throughout the book that one of the main themes of this book is that of the sovereignty of God. That God is in control. So often in our life, even in our life under the sun, we need to be reminded that there is someone outside of our little world. There is someone above the sun. We tend to get wrapped up in us and our stuff. And we forget. We forget God. This is the God who started all this in the first place. This is the God who is even now in control. And the God who will one day completely judge all that we have done. This is what we mean by a sovereign God. We're talking about a God who is creator, a God who is ruler, a God who provides, and a God who judges. Now, there's much that we cannot understand about how God works. There's much of this that is simply beyond our comprehension. And our text today in verse 5 will indicate this to us. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that dilemma of not knowing completely, of not understanding completely? Well, this calls us to faith. Now, faith, as it is described in the book of Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. But this faith is totally meaningless if God is not sovereign. You see, our faith is not dependent on how well we can blindly trust the unknown. That isn't faith. That's insanity. But our faith is dependent on the reality that God is trustworthy, that he is faithful, that he is good, that he is sovereign. Now, sometimes we are tempted to think that the quantity or the quality of our faith is what matters the most if only I can have enough faith if only I can believe well enough then everything will be okay no no that's not what matters the most what matters the most is the object of our faith who are you trusting in Is your God the God of the Bible? Or is your God one that you have fashioned for yourself? A God that is more in tune with your desires and your imagination. The antidote to lack of faith. Now the biblical terminology for lack of faith is unbelief. The antidote for unbelief is not to try harder. The antidote for unbelief is not to suspend rational thought. The antidote to unbelief is to know God. To know Him as He is revealed to us in His Word. That is the antidote to unbelief. Now some people say that this doctrine of the sovereignty of God is nice and it's theoretical and it's important to theologians and people who have inquiring minds but it doesn't really make much difference in how we live our lives. In fact, these are some of the same people that claim that God isn't really sovereign after all, that he waits for us to make our decisions, and then he responds accordingly. This belief is called open theism. That's the terminology that's used to describe it. And what these people have done is attempted to refashion a God in our image to refashion a God that's like us. And as, as such, they undermine the faith of many. And contrary to what they say, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God does affect the way we live. It powerfully affects the way we live. And this text today in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 will demonstrate this in three particular ways. In verse one, one, verses 1 through 4, we will see that a generous faith in a sovereign God will enable us to give generously. In verses 5 through 6, we will see that a generous faith in a sovereign God will enable us to work diligently. And in verses 7 through 10, and even into chapter 12, we will see that a generous faith in a sovereign God will enable us to live for eternity. So let's read the text. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters... As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not, do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years... Our vanity. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and before your word today with humility of heart, realizing that we are but dust in the mighty scales and balance of your creation. And yet you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us in special ways. You have sent your Son Jesus to this earth save us from our sins. You have promised us, if we trust in him, life eternal is ours. And so we want to hear from you, Lord. We want to hear who you are. We want to hear what you expect of us. We want to learn to trust you more completely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, we, we looked at the reality that life is risky. That wise living comes with risks. And that we need to carefully prepare, we need to plan, we need to deal with these risks. Not to eliminate them, but to recognize them and plan accordingly. And now in this chapter, in chapter 11, we see that risk and reward take on a bigger dimension when God is in the picture. You see, this isn't all up to us. So the instructions are for us to, yes, take some risk. Not in a careless way, not in a reckless way, but in a confident way. Not confident because we have it all together, and not confident because we understand how it's all going to work, but confidence because we trust in God. The God who is ultimately in control. The God who will reward as he sees fit. And so, verse 1 here counsels us, instructs us to cast our bread upon the waters, to trust God that the rewards will come in good time. There are some important things to note here. There is a disagreement among commentators and translators as to exactly how these verses should be applied. And some say that these verses are to be applied to trade or business. So diversify your business interests. uh, Spread your risk out. Perhaps applications can be made in that way. But today, I want to apply this text in the way that the older Hebrew interpretation applied it. And that was in the giving of alms. In the sharing with others and giving generously to help others. Now the principles here are the same. Whichever way we want to apply it, the principles are the same. So we can apply this in a couple of different ways. But today I want to to focus primarily on application that deals with giving and being generous. Now this bread that it's talking about, cast your bread upon the waters. Bread refers to that which gives sustenance, that which gives life. Is used this way throughout the scriptures food now if we look back in chapter 10 we see in, the, in the, one of the closing verses there it says in verse 19 that bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything <laughs> ok so money especially in our culture and our economy money is that which is needed to buy bread ok Money is that which which provides for us. So we are to cast or we are to give that which is necessary to life. And in this context, I believe we could say that, that that could be food, actual food that we might give to someone. But we might also give them other necessities of life. And we might even give them money as a part of this, casting our bread upon the waters. In any case, we see here that we are to give We are to give what is ours to give. It says, cast your bread. You're not to cast someone else's bread on the water. You're not to give generously what belongs to someone else. No, no, what's yours to give. This means we don't give other people's money. We don't rob from Peter to give to Paul. We only give that which rightfully belongs to us. And we are to give generously and broadly, not stingily. Now the reason we can do this is not because we understand exactly where this is going to go, or how it's going to be used, or what the reward will be for us. No, we don't know that. But the reason we can give generously is because we know God. We know that God knows. We know that God provides We know that he will reward as he sees fit. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They got what they were after. They wanted attention, they wanted notice of men, they got it. But you, when you give to the needy, do not let your your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the reason we give and cast our bread upon the waters is not because we know that this will work. That this will have the desired effect in terms of what we want. But we do it because we know that God is the giver of every good thing, and God will prosper, and God will reward Now, sometimes we are overly concerned about where our money is going and what it will accomplish. One of the reasons I think that we're tempted in this way is because we don't trust God. We don't believe that He is really sovereign. And we need this reminder from Isaiah 49. It says, but I said, I have labored in vain. This is what we tend to say. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. In verse 2, we are reminded that we don't know what all is going to happen. We don't know what all trouble will come. There is no way for us to prepare for all potential disasters. And the references to seven or eight portions here can again be applied to diversifying our business interests but I want to apply it today to our giving. The terminology of seven or eight is a literary device used in Scripture to indicate not a specific number, but to indicate an unlimited amount or a liberal generosity. We find similar language in Job 5 verse 19 where God promises that he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. So there's this... These two numbers given, but they're really representing uh, something that, that extends beyond, indefinitely. So in other words, we should not be so concerned with measuring up to a particular amount or quantity or number or standard. Rather, we should give generously, Jesus says, to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We ought to have an open hand with the stuff that God has given us. And the reason given is that we don't know what kind of evil lurks around the corner. We don't know what kind of disaster may happen on the earth. And yet God does know all these things. And he knows what we have need of. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. In fact, Jesus said that we should use the resources at our disposal in this life, under the sun. We should use these resources to share with others so that when trouble comes, they will be in a position to help us. Jesus says in Luke, 19, Luke 16, verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous or earthly wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The day may be near when you will need the help of those whom you have been bound to by your kindness and generosity. The very argument that covetous men use against generosity, namely that bad times might come. Things might get bad, so I better not give because I want to make sure I have enough for myself. That very same argument that covetous people use against generosity, the wise man uses for it. The difference is that the wise man trusts God. The wise man knows that God knows what he's doing and God will provide. The foolish man thinks that it's all up to him and up to his shrewd and skillful thinking and planning and preparation. And the foolish man hoards to himself while the wise man gives to others. The difference between the foolish man and the wise man is a generous faith in a sovereign God. Which kind of person would you rather be? Which kind of person would you rather be around? Verses 3 and 4 remind us of another principle of God's sovereignty. That is that God has set things in motion as a part of creation, as a part of the order of the world. He has made things to work in a certain way. This is a part of his providence for us. This is a part of his care for us. There is a law of cause and effect. There is a law of sowing and reaping. This applies to our giving as well as to our business endeavors, to other aspects of life. The natural evidence given here in verse 3 is that of clouds that are full of rain. What happens when you see a a cloud that is dark and heavy and full of rain? What's going to happen? It's going to unload that rain. Eventually, it will dump that moisture. It's the way it works in the world. And then the rain falls on everything in its path. The Bible talks about this as a part of the providence of God. This represents God's good providence, even to the unjust, even to the undeserving, that He sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is the way it works in His world: the clouds get full, and they unleash the rain, and they don't just unleash it on those who deserve it. They unleash it broadly, generously. The second application here is found in that this tree falling. Now, this principle deals with the permanence of what happens. Once the tree has fallen down, it will never stand back up. Once the tree has fallen down in one direction, it can't stand back up and fall in another direction. Once it's down, it's down, and that's where it's going to stay. Now, Adam Clark had an interesting description of this, and I cannot approve upon it, so I will quote him. Death is at no great distance. Thou hast but a short time to do good. Acquire heavenly, a heavenly disposition while here, for there will be no change after this life. If thou die in the love of God and in the love of man, in that state will thou be found in the day of judgment. If a tree about to fall, lean to the north, to the north it will fall. If to the south, it will fall to that quarter. In what, whatever disposition or state of soul thou diest, in that thou wilt be found in the eternal world. Death refines nothing, purifies nothing, kills no sin, helps to no glory. Let thy continual bent and inclination be to God, to holiness, to charity, to mercy, and to heaven. Then fall when thou mayest, thou wilt fall well. How are you going to fall? When your tree falls, where is it going to lie? Well, that is predicated upon how you live your life. Whether you seek God in this life or whether you reject him. Now, this reality of the sovereignty of God and the finality of life, this law of sowing and reaping and this law of permanence, should not cause us to freeze up in fear. No, the opposite in fact should occur now if we are focused on something other than God we will freeze up we will fear we will be anxious if it says here if we look at the wind and we're, we try to wait until we have just the right moment until the conditions are just perfect if we wait for that we'll never get it done it will never be just right. If you think, well, I'll wait to give until I make sure that I have everything under control. I'll wait to give until I'm financially secure. I'll wait to give until I have some some money saved away in the bank to take care of the, the, the what ifs, the the problems, the potential disasters. If you wait till then to give, you will never give. If you wait until you are financially secure before you bless others, you will not get it done. If you wait until the horizon is all clear and there is no trouble in sight, then you'll never find a good opportunity to sow. And you neither will you reap. If you wait until the weather is just perfect, the crop will never be harvested. It will spoil before you get it. Now in contrast, the one who looks to God, the one whose focus is on God, will sow and reap in faith. Sometimes God asks us to give. Sometimes he asks us to take risks, even when the wind appears to be blowing in the wrong direction. Who are you going to trust? Who do you think knows best? You or God? Sometimes we doubt that God knows what he's doing. We want to make sure that the money we are giving is going to a deserving individual or place or institution when in fact God might want to use it to bless an undeserving individual. Right? He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. Maybe he wants to use you to rain on the unjust. Who are you to stand in judgment on God? A generous faith in a sovereign God empowers us to give generously without partiality. This brings us to the middle section of this passage. A generous faith in a sovereign God empowers us, enables us to work diligently. You see, the reality is that we don't understand the ways of God. We do not understand. And so we shouldn't stand in judgment on what God is doing. And here's a for instance that comes from from verse 5. How many of you understand how it is that the spirit of a person is joined to the mass of cells that is developing in a woman's womb? Anybody understand that? How that happens? What that process is? I didn't think so. And and modern science, for all its glory and goodness, doesn't understand either. God knows Psalm 139 your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them that friends is the sovereignty of God creator sustainer provider ruler judge this same kind of work the same kind of spiritual work is what happens in our conversion. And again, it's not explainable in scientific terms. It must be accepted and known by faith, by a generous faith in a sovereign God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, you know it's there, you see it working, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit we do not understand the ways of God now some people believe that the sovereignty of God is nothing more than fatalism and that it makes null and void any and all human activity nothing could be further from the truth that view of the sovereignty of God is far too small far too narrow Our God is bigger than all of that. In fact, our God works through our activity to accomplish His work in the world. Our God works through our decisions and through our actions and through our choices, through our thoughts and our minds. Just as God works through the very physical and biological functions of childbearing to bring a new soul into the world, so He works through our decisions and our efforts and our thinking to bring new spiritual life into being. This is a God who is truly sovereign. And this should give us great confidence. Great confidence to go out and sow diligently and broadly. We don't need to be afraid that our efforts will be in vain. We can sow the seed beginning in the morning and sow it all day and still be sowing at night, withholding not our hand the fact of the matter is we do not know what the results will be and that's okay. We sow here and we sow there and we don't know whether that's going to grow and prosper or not. But we're not responsible for that. That's God's work. We are responsible to sow diligently and we can do it with confidence. Trusting, faith, knowing that God will work, that He will accomplish the purposes that He has in mind, that He will As his word goes forth, he will cause it to accomplish that which he has chosen. We can sow the seed diligently. We can sow it liberally. Even when it looks like things are against us. Because we know that God is God and that he is trustworthy. Even in the midst of suffering and of pain, we still trust him. Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who, he who goes out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And the reason for this confidence is that we know. We know who supplies both the seed and the rain to water it. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love him. And we trust him to do his work. To increase the harvest of our righteousness and we confidently and diligently do what he has asked us to do with joy how can we have this confidence how can we give in this way what should motivate us to give what should motivate us to spend and be spent for the glory of God well the message of the gospel compels us here our trust in God Frees us to spend our lives in generous ways. Because we know that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was gracious and good enough to send his beloved son, his most precious son, into this world to die on our behalf and for our sins if God did that then what makes you think that he doesn't care about the little things in your life don't you think he can take care of everything else too why are you so stingy is it because you don't really know this God you don't really trust him Maybe you've been trusting in another God. Maybe you've been trusting in yourself. A generous faith in a sovereign God equips and motivates us to work diligently, trusting God with the results. It also equips us to live in light of eternity. Verses 7 through 10 in the first part of chapter 12 remind us That we will need to face this sovereign God one day. In the day of judgment, all that we have done will be judged. We're going to be held account, held to account for what we have done in this life. And because our God is sovereign, He knows everything. Now again, this shouldn't cause us to freeze up in fear. This shouldn't cause us to be anxious. And it really shouldn't cause us to be reckless. It should cause us to trust in God for all the days of our life. The picture here given in verses 7 through 10 is that of light and darkness. We currently live in the light of life under the sun. We have awareness of our surroundings. We have awareness of what it is that is going on in our world. But there is coming a day, and that day is not too distant. There is coming a day that we do not know we cannot see that is referred to in the scripture as the day of darkness there is coming a day when our useful life here on earth will begin to decline and after that is the great unknown the great darkness we would do well to live our lives in this light of life that we have now with the realization that the dark days the unknown days are many more than the days we have here this could be very depressing much as it was to Job when he said why did you bring me out from the womb why was I born would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave are not my days few yes they are Job then he says, Cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go. I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick, dark, thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, order, where light is as thick darkness. Here's a man who is depressed. A man who wishes that he hadn't been born. He doesn't value the light of life. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes points us to a different way a way of living by a generous faith in a sovereign God, a way of seeing the the momentary days that we have here on earth as a gift to be enjoyed, a gift to give to others. And he says, rejoice in your youth. Live it up. Live life to the fullest. Let your heart cheer you. Do what you enjoy. But do this in the context of the certain judgment of God know that you will be held account, to account for this. So seek God first in His ways, and then you can do exactly what your heart desires. If you desire to do God's work, if you desire what God desires, then you can do whatever it is your heart desires, and it will be joy to you. Don't be anxious. Put away evil or pain from your body for this brief life will soon be over and then we commend our spirits into the hand of the sovereign God who made us who has provided for us and who will judge us ah but there is a bit of a problem he's going to judge us and none of us will measure up to God's standard none of us are perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So how in the world are we to live joyful lives in the light of eternity, in the light of that judgment, in the light of that impossibility? Remember, our God is bigger than we think. Our God thought about this a long time before we were born. He thought about this even before he created this world. And he has a solution. He has provided a way for the light of eternity to enter our experience to dwell within us through His Son Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light that we really need is not this light life under the sun. The light that we really need is the light of Jesus Christ. He is the answer to our dilemma. He is the way we can live well in the light of eternity. A life of generous faith in a sovereign God who provides for our redemption. Galatians 2 for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that is the way we live in light of eternity so how about you Are you giving generously of that which God has given to you? Your time? Your money? Your talents? Or are you stingy and selfish? Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're worried. Or are you a bit reckless? Well, what are you living for? Who are you living for? That might give you a little clue into why you're anxious or worried. Or why are you living recklessly with little care for eternity? What you need is a healthy dose of a sovereign God. The God who made you. The God who provides and cares for you both spiritually and physically. And the God who will judge you when this life is over. You know the the happiest, most joyful people that I know are ones who really do believe and trust in a sovereign God. Now, their lives are not without pain and without sorrow. In fact, it is often through pain and through sorrow and through suffering that we really come to know God and His providence. The most generous people that I know are ones who confidently give, who confidently act and trust in a sovereign God. The most holy people that I know have a deep seated trust in a God who has acted on their behalf through the personal work of Jesus Christ so that they can live a life, a generous life, a life of faith in a sovereign God. Now, make no mistake about it, there will be no excuses when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No excuses. Yeah, I know, I didn't share generously with others. I was too concerned with making sure the right people got it at the right time and looking good while I did it. Yeah, I didn't sow the seed because I was waiting for just the right circumstances. Yeah, I lived the years of my youth in reckless rebellion because I wanted to enjoy myself regardless of the consequences. And the God of all the universe, the sovereign ruler of every speck of dirt, will say to you, I made you. I gave everything that you had. Gave you everything you had. I designed every circumstance and every gift and every trial so that you would blossom and flourish and live and serve. I gave you all the pleasures and pains of your life for your ultimate good. I even sent my son Jesus to take away your sins and provide eternal life with me in my heaven forever and you did what? then he will say to those on his left depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels for I was hungry and you gave me no food I was thirsty and you gave me no drink I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me Let's pray. Eternal and sovereign God, we tremble at your greatness. We tremble at your demands. And yet we rest in faith, in confidence, that you are a good God, a God who has provided for us, a God who has created us, and made us God who has given us all things richly to enjoy God who has given us his most precious son so that we can live with you forever oh God may you enlarge our hearts enlarge our understanding of who you are and how you act in our world and in our hearts motivate us to be generous, to be liberal with our stuff, to be diligent in our work, and to live this short life here on earth carefully so that we can benefit and enjoy you forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.